Welcome to the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I'm your host, Josh Robinson. The world is full of negative news, and the planet seems to be in an ecological crisis. And this can be downright disheartening and disenfranchising because we feel that there's nothing that each one of us can do as an individual that can make any difference. Well, I'm here to provide a different perspective, to tell a new story. The Permaculture for the Future podcast is all about spreading positive and impactful stories, tips, and ways that each one of us can transition into a regenerative lifestyle where we can make an ecological impact. We talk about simple ways to make lifestyle changes as we interview authors, teachers, and other folks that are collectively healing ourselves and the planet. So if you want to make an ecological impact, stick around because this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number nine of the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I am so excited about today's show where I got to sit down and have a conversation with one of my best friends, Brooke Sarson. We sat down to initially talk about rainwater harvesting and gray water systems, but I realized that there's a bigger story here that's underlying the rainwater and the gray water. It's a story that I think many people that are interested in permaculture, interested in regenerative design, interested in making the world a better place, and that is coming from the fact that we all need livelihoods. And so this interview is really directed around this conversation about making a living doing the work. So Brooke is somebody that came from a whole different background, but was driven by a passion for wanting to make a difference in her community. She saw that through the lens of water harvesting, water being a limited resource here in the Southern California region. And so it was within this problem that there arose an opportunity. And in today's discussion, that's what we're going to get into, is this ability to look at problems, turn them into opportunities, and let that process unfold while creating livelihoods, while creating jobs, while restoring and regenerating our local communities. So we have a really great show. I'm so excited. I hope you all get as much out of it as I did, and I'll see you all at the end. So without further ado, here's Brooke. Okay, well, welcome, Brooke, to the Permaculture for the Future podcast. Um, I was really excited to get a chance to talk with you about your story of getting into the realm of permaculture and water harvesting. And I think it's, I, you know, I've known you for well over a decade now, maybe 15 years or something like that. And I think it's just a really remarkable story that you have of, you know, starting off where you did and ending up where you are now. And, and I really want to just jump right in and hear a little bit about your beginnings into permaculture and water harvesting. So do you just want to give a little intro of who you are? My name is Brooke Sarson, and my company Catching H2O installs rainwater and gray water systems here in San Diego. Great. And so how did you get into permaculture? By accident. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it was kind of one of those moments in your life where you just need to figure out something. And um, I had two small children. I had a degree in electrical engineering and mathematics and had done some work in that and was ready to think of my next steps. What what was I going to do next? What, what kind of job was I going to do? You know, I personally was separating from my husband at the time. And so just had a lot going on. And During that process, I spent a lot of time kind of trying to think about what matters to me, what I care about. And it was really important to me as I figured out what I was going to do next, that it was something that would make the world a better place for my kids. 
And I just kept coming back to water. I grew up in camping in the Sierras and, you know, hiked the John Muir Trail with my family when I was 16 and grew up in, you know, going to Bishop, California with streams running through the properties and water, water just had some really important meanings to me. So I'd also spent a lot of time in Australia and they were catching rainwater and things like that. So it wasn't a foreign concept to me. And the more I studied it, the more I read about it, the more I realized things like that were happening here in the United States, but it just wasn't that common. And I'd found Brad Lancaster and I had found Art Ludwig, and this was back in 2008. And so I kind of reached out a little bit, not really sure what I was wanting or needing, just needed some training or exposure or something. And I landed on a permaculture course in Arizona uh, by the ECOSA Institute. And they were having a permaculture class and it featured Brad Lancaster. And I thought, oh, great, I'm going to learn everything I need to know about rainwater tanks and gray water systems. At the time, we were going through a drought in San Diego. And I thought people should be connected with this information. People should know that this is an option. Nobody in the policy realm, the regulators, nobody was really talking about these solutions as real solutions for um, drought conditions. Um, but I, again, I'd seen how Australia had handled themselves in drought. And this was actually a really critical piece of their policy was making sure everybody has on-site water storage. So I took, I went to the permaculture class. I had no idea what permaculture was. It was a month long class. We spent a week with Brad. We spent a week with Josh Robinson with you, uh, and a couple weeks with Andrew Millison learning all about permaculture. And my mind was totally blown. I got way more out of it than just the water stuff. And actually, I didn't really even learn the nuts and bolts of how to install a gray water system. But I learned about ecological design, which I think is just really enhanced my understanding of how to proceed with the, the projects that I wanted to do. And um, even though I really thought Brad Lancaster was going to kind of teach me all those nuts and bolts. The thing I got out of my time with Brad, which was really interesting, was the community and social aspect of bringing about change. Uh, the kinds of projects he was working on, the way that he was spearheading projects that weren't being done or weren't seen anywhere else. Um, and then creating political change because of their success was really inspiring to me. And that was one of my big takeaways from the permaculture class as well. For sure. So how did you really end up deciding on a permaculture course? You mentioned you didn't really know what it entailed. And yet here you signed up for a course that was not only just a, you know, beyond a two week one, it was a one month commitment. And because of that, also a significant investment of your time and money. So what was it about that particular course that you decided to to, uh, to do? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I definitely saw the water connection in there and I couldn't find really anything else around that was water related. That was kind of getting to the heart of what I wanted, which was not just, I didn't want to really start a company. I didn't want to be a contractor. I really wanted to understand systems. Uh, being an engineer, you know, that was kind of how my mind worked was at a systems level. And I think that the permaculture class spoke to that, but also spoke about a lot of things that I care about as well. Um, growing food, uh, care caring about the, the climate and the environment. Um, those kinds of things resonated with me. And so I felt if I was going to invest any time in, a, you know, kind of another learning experience, this was this was a way I was going to get something out of it that was more than just meeting uh, a goal of becoming a contractor who can do X, Y, Z, but really also fulfilling some some kind of deep spiritual need for myself as well. Mm. Yeah, the very important kind of work. Now, let me 
ask you, so you, you decided to go through this course. You were inspired by not only the, the water harvesting pieces, but then seeing this kind of community component as demonstrated by Brad Lancaster in that whole Tucson scene there. And you came back to San Diego. And what was your goal at that point with what you were wanting to do? And how did you, I mean, at that point, you were also a engineer, correct? And Well, I wasn't working as an engineer at that time. I had taken time off to raise my children. I actually scored an internship at City College Farm, uh, which had just started. So I was working, you know, in a new realm also for myself in the farming community, making community connections there. But I had already kind of had this concept of what I wanted to do. So I was talking to people there about it and they were all very supportive. And the way that I frame it to myself always and still is I wanted to be a resource to my community. I wanted people to know what was possible. I wanted people to know, you know, where to get things. I wanted people to know and learn how to put things together. I wanted people to have a resource if they didn't want to put things together, but they wanted it just to be done. So that was kind of my vision was to be a resource. And in order to start being a resource, I really had to have a good showcase. And that was something I learned from you, Josh, at your your home in Flagstaff, there was just, you know, it was beautiful and it was a place where you could bring people and, you know, show them how different things worked and, and what worked and what didn't. And I was really inspired by that. And um, I wanted to set these systems up in my own home. And fortunately, you came back into town for to teach a water harvesting course for like a three day or a two day course. And I talked you into doing a second one at my house. And it was pretty incredible that we installed a 1300 gallon tank. We installed a sh- complex shower gray water system and a laundry gray water system. And after that, I was on my own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at what point then did you transition, you know, getting this information just to people as kind of a resource to turning that into a a business and your income and your livelihood? Yeah, this is a really good question because I think it happened sooner than I was willing to say that that was what I was doing. But sort of from the get go, as I started talking to people about this, you know, I kind of realized, oh, I need to be able to supply that for people. And I had a couple clients in the early days that just, you know, wanted to hire me for that. And so I, I dove in, you know, after I learned how to put up a leaf filter and put it, install a three-way valve, I just kind of dove in. I had a plumber who I worked with for a couple of projects that he showed me some tricks and I showed him some tricks. So that was good. And I would open my house for open houses and show people around and, and, you know, I kind of really just dove in It's a little bit bold now that I look back at it. But I would say I didn't really acknowledge myself as a business person until, I don't know, pro- so I started that business in 2008 and I w- probably wouldn't have acknowledged myself as a business person until maybe 2014 um, when I met my partner and she was a business person and she kind of helped me to realize what was going on. And, and once I said, oh yeah, I'm running a business. This is who I am and what I'm doing. It changed my interface with my clients and with my community. And I felt like I was able to provide the kinds of services they needed in a more professional way, somehow inside myself. And it was, it felt more fair to them and me that I was calling it what it was, which was a business instead of just trying to do some altruistic thing in the world and, and feeling like I, I don't know how I was ever going to make ends meet and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounded like it came about really organically where you just started to kind of share this information with the community and your neighbors. They would come out, see what you're doing and then realize like, hey, I want something like this too. And you were the person showing it off. So all of a sudden you became the quote unquote expert since nobody else was doing this kind of work. And from there, people asking you to come out and do something for their house. And did, did it start off as kind of paid things or workshops or how did that 
transition? It was paid, but I would say very underpaid. I had no idea what to charge. <laughs> I had no idea how long things would take or what things cost. And since I wasn't considering myself a business person, you know, I wasn't really charging what I needed to maintain, you know, a business with licenses and all of that kind of stuff. So I would say the helpful things in that moment were a, I got to call you, let me call you whenever I needed help. And I would say, Oh, well, what do you use for this situation? And you were very open with me and sharing that information with me. And then the other thing was just practice. I mean, I basically had to learn how to put anchors in stucco walls all by myself and mess up a few times and apologize to people and learn what tanks there were in the world and who was stocking them and what fit where. And, you know, in the early days, it was it was really hard to know all the answers without doing a lot of research. But now it's just kind of like a intuition and a second nature. It's like having a sixth sense or something. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a really important piece because a lot of people that come into permaculture and, or just wanting to make the world a better place. So many times do I get asked questions around like, well, what jobs are there out there? And I think that's really a hard question to answer because the work that needs to get done the jobs that are, you know, around, if you're looking at what's existing already, just aren't there. Mm-hmm. And the, but the opportunity is because we need this kind of work and we need models that can incentivize people to, to get out there and do it. And I know oftentimes like starting your own business can be a very daunting task because, you know, one, like you said, you don't know what you don't know. And to get over that hurdle just takes either a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe being naive or just a willingness to try and see where things go. And, you know, you went down that path. You got through some of the initial hurdles of, you know, that learning curve, which can be quite drastic. And, you know, one of the things I talk to people about with business is oftentimes you might have a great skill set in whatever that trade is, whether it's, you know, rainwater harvesting, you know, gardening, landscaping, whatever, whatever service that you want to provide. But when you get into like the business side, that's typically maybe, you know, 10% of the work, you know, the rest of it is the marketing, the positioning, the, you know, finding clients, you know, the hiring, all the the bureaucracy of, you know, navigating a legitimate business. And it does take someone willing, I think, just to jump right in and allow that process to really unfold, which is, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, it's oftentimes how I think about design too. Because, you know, when we try to impose something on the real world, it doesn't often work to our advantage. But yet when we allow, you know, the water to show us how it wants to move or when we allow a plant to express where it wants to grow, we can learn a lot more about it. And so just the letting that that design process really unfold into the existence of whatever it wants to to become. Yeah, I would say just building on that, that totally makes me think of patterning. And that's kind of what it is, is, you know, I felt like I spent the first very many years just completely open to the process. You know, I wasn't trying to impose my will or my idea on, you know, what, how this was going to work out. I was just very open. And during that time, I was actually recording a lot of data in my heart and in my mind about, you know, what was working and what wasn't working. So by the time that I was really ready to settle into being a business owner and, and calling it what it was, I used those patterns to, you know, really get into, you know, what kind of marketing to do, or like, how do clients like to, you know, be interacted with, or how do I, you know, use my employees in ways that's co that are co-beneficial, um, 
And I think that that patterning in the beginning was really crucial. I didn't come from a business background, which is probably a bonus. You know, if I had kind of inserted myself into saying, well, I'm going to run my business like this, things might have worked out completely different. But um, it was a very organic, a very organic evolution, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely sounds like it. Now, at what point do you feel like you were making a living doing that work? Mm, the last few years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say by 2015, it was definitely becoming a substantial income that I could live on, you know, very lightly. <laughs> and by 2016, I had made really good partnerships with Ecology Artisans, your company, Rosalind Hasselbeck. She had been building green futures before and she had just transitioned to catching H2O. And, you know, at the time I felt like I was doing a good enough business that, you know, going into partnership would, would be able to make that better and um, more or should I say, like have more protections in place, um, having more people involved that um, are doing good work. And so by the time Rosalind and I started our company together in 2017, it was definitely that was how we were earning our income. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that seems to be, you know, when you are starting your your own business, there is a lot of investment that might need to go in at the beginning, whether it's the the learning investment, whether it's the the money and time just to kind of build it up. And even just a conventional business, often, you know, it takes a number of years before you're actually turning a profit. Mm -hmm. And that that's something that, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily think about. But, you know, not that you're also not able to get by, Right. I mean, it's like you maybe weren't making large amounts of money, but I often think about that kind of period of a business as really your higher education. You know, it's kind of like getting a Ph.D. or a master's degree in your uh, life and, and in that business and kind of learning to, to navigate that. Uh, but you also mentioned a really important piece there that I kind of want to dive down into and, and discuss a little bit with you. And that is the importance of partnerships. Because oftentimes in the conventional business world, you look at different businesses that may be doing something similar. Um, and let me actually step back and put some context into this. So you had essentially the first rainwater and graywater harvesting business here in San Diego. Um, now we have a population here of 3 million plus people. And obviously there's a lot of demand, uh, especially as water prices increase and people want to, you know, save money, uh, by saving water. All of a sudden your skill set becomes in demand. And as a result, there's other companies and other people that are like, you know, I want to make a difference too. And they're starting up rainwater and gray water harvesting businesses and you could either choose to look at that as a negative as like, oh, they're going to take away business for me. But we know that if we study how ecosystems work, that oftentimes the strength and integrity and the resilience of an ecosystem is often defined by the uh, number of connections it's able to make and, and relationships that different organisms are able to make with other organisms. And so you have really jumped out there and rather than trying to say, well, this is a problem, woe is me, you decided to actually integrate with some of the other businesses to actually strengthen that whole scenario. So do you want to just talk about that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when, uh, I mean, just to take one step back a little bit, um, I think sometimes when people start businesses, they, you know, go out and get loans and then put a lot of money into a marketing budget or sales budget or something. And, um, so I didn't go into debt, but I did spend a lot of energy building social capital. Mm -hmm. And during that period, um, 
I was really embracing all of the different kinds of people that were connected to peripherally and, you know, substantially to the kind of work that I wanted to do, because I realized, you know, water isn't a standalone thing. I mean, people want to grow gardens with water. I'm not a landscape designer, you know, uh, people need to adjust plumbing, you know, to use their water. I'm not a plumber. And so during that process, you know, I, I kind of went into it very open hearted and, one of the things I really appreciate and respect about Rosalind is, for example, that she's interested in a different layer of the conversation than I am. She's, you know, been putting in permitted and pumped systems for many years. And I really, I didn't want to get bogged down in the bureaucracy of permitting. I, you know, didn't want to encourage people to put in pumped systems because I didn't want to be responsible for things breaking and the complexities of that. But it's important because people need that. And so I didn't see it as um, that we were in competition with each other. I just saw opportunities for me to rely on Rosalind to fill holes in my knowledge. And um, I know that what I bring to the table is social capital. So I have the ability to, you know, connect and move our company in ways that, you know, that she might not. Yeah, I think that's a super important and really beautiful acknowledgement. And I think, you know, if you look at it and bring it back to maybe like permaculture's uh, terminology, it's kind of like a site assessment, right? And, and if you're looking at a land-based permaculture design, you might go out and look at things like the sun moving across the site or wind or fire. You're looking at the soils and what plants are there. And you're kind of making these guesses on what's happening or what the potential is, seeing what's beneficial, what's not working so well. And when you begin to apply that same level of thinking to ourselves, we realize like we have certain skill sets that we're really good at and areas that we really thrive or maybe there's just certain things that we really like to do and there's certain things that we don't like to do. And you looked at yourself and what your skill set was really good at, what maybe the things that you really enjoyed doing or the things that you didn't like, getting permits, for instance. And you saw that opportunity in uh, Roslyn and the business that she had that they were very much complementary skill sets. And by merging those two together, you can actually create something that's more robust, more resilient. Uh, and, you know, it takes a little bit of maybe the pressure off too. That's, that's often a piece that I've seen, whether you're starting a new project that isn't a business or a business itself, it can oftentimes be really daunting to start because you have so much of that uh, responsibility just on yourself to get things done. But when you then are able to share that uh, responsibility and break up some of the tasks, it all of a sudden becomes a lot easier to do. And so I think that's a really you know powerful uh, you know insight that you were able to kind of work into your business model. And I want to just shift on that maybe a little bit, and we could talk a little bit along those same lines about maybe, so we're, we're land partners, right? And what was it? Five years ago, we decided to go in on a 17 acre uh, abandoned avocado grove here in Northern San Diego County. And for people that aren't familiar with San Diego, the land prices can be quite expensive and that can often be really daunting, or it could be, even be a barrier just for acquisition of, you know, a home and, and, and farm or, you know, any other, you know, nuance that you want to look at it, whether it's starting a business and needing the capital or, or whatnot. Um, now, was it five or six years ago, we came together to jointly purchase a property between two families. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that experience and, you know, what that was like for you and what your thoughts were in that realm? Yeah. I mean, it's all kind of part of the same thing where it's, uh, um, you know, there's the financial aspect, sure, of like, I'll 
probably never be able to afford a home of my own on a, you know, the wages that I make with my running my own business. But there's also the aspect of, you know, what do I like to do with my time and my energy and what am I good at? And really going into a project like buying 17 acres, there's some things I know about myself, like I'm never going to be a farmer. I mean, I love growing my own food, but I don't want to come up with some kind of plan to grow food for you know, a business situation. That's not something I'm good at. It's distracting from the other things that I'm doing. You know, there's, I'm, can be good at like organizing projects, but I'm not necessarily the handiest person. I don't know much about the building process. Um, Anyway, there's lots of things like that where it was kind of, when you proposed the idea of going into land together, I was like, yeah, Great. You know, first of all, I'm not on the hook financially for a hundred percent of it. Um, so that's helpful. That's an easier yes. And we have very complementary skill sets uh, along with our, our partners and it just, it seemed like a good idea and it has been a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) Have, what have the downsides been, do you think in this this endeavor? You know, I think having more people means that decision-making takes longer we could say decision-making is, can be more challenging. Um, but you know, we're all, we're all working hard at that. And I think we're doing a really good job. Um, aside from that, I don't know what the downsides are. I mean, getting in, getting on the hook financially for a project like this is a lot of weight, but it feels a lot better knowing that we're in it together than, Mm -hmm. you know, all by ourselves. Um, And sometimes the decision-making becomes easier because there's a lot of decisions I don't necessarily feel competent making all by myself. And it feels good to have feedback from other people who have similar interests and concerns as you to, you know, understand from their perspective, you know, how they're making their decisions so that I can, I can say, oh yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that Mm -hmm. and feel empowered. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a piece for me is uh, also just knowing that we can kind of, again, split up some of the tasks. So, you know, like as we're researching, you know, building two houses here, what the cost might be for X versus B and kind of getting all those numbers. If it's just me doing all that or just my family, it could be a one still is a tremendous amount of work, but it's a little bit less being able to just share that. So we have a kind of a financial piece and then there's also a social piece, right? And that's kind of something that I think oftentimes in our society, we, you know, many people are wanting to have strong relationships with community and friends and, and family, um, especially in San Diego. It's a, it's a area where a lot of people move here and they don't oftentimes have family. Now I, you know, grew up here. Uh, Yael, my partner, grew up here. We all have family here. You grew up in the area, but your family's not here. And I think a lot of people in San Diego are in that that similar realm. But, you know, here we are able to create something together where we can have, you know, different interactions. And you you obviously have a family. I have a family. I, I see us being able to kind of share in that that responsibility as well. It's like, you know, if, if I'm not around or Yael's not around, uh, for our daughter Zoe, it's like, I I know I can look to you guys as, as somebody that's constantly looking out for her. It's cool. It's coming back to maybe like that village model, Mm -hmm. right. Which is, you know, something that I think is pretty much ingrained in like the human tradition of, of connection. It's something that we're all striving for. And yet the modern way of building and the modern way of living in our modern culture seems to want to try to push us away from those connections as we globalize all of these, uh, you know, relationships to things that are further out and, you know, technology just kind of gets in the way and, and trying to kind of bring that back. Absolutely. And I would add that I think a lot of people, if it's the same thing about, you know, business and, and cooperation versus competition, you know, it's, I think in our current society, we just have this idea that, you know, it's too hard to kind of make decisions with other people and to like get a, like, 
promise that you'll get along all the time. And, um, so I think that people avoid that, you know, it's like you move into your house in the suburbs and you don't have to ask anybody permission about anything. It's your house. You can do whatever you want, you know? Um, same with business. It's like, it's your business. You can make your decisions the way you want to make them. But if you have, you know, if you have some commonality and you really care about, you know, working together and you care about, you know, be working in collaboration. I mean, that stuff is hard, but it's also really rewarding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you trust and it involves a lot of trust, like the kind of trust where you just, you dive in, you're like, I think somebody's going to catch me because I, you know, I trust them and they always catch you. Yeah. I think you and I have a very similar personality in that regard, you know, and I think that, that seems to be almost a commonality I see of people that are like choosing to make a business in something that is kind of unknown or just jumping in. It's like you have to have a certain level of trust mm -hmm. um, because it could be really daunting to move from like, well, where am I going to get my next paycheck or, you know, whatever it is, what's the potential negative side? And you just kind of have to, you know, wipe that, that uh, fear away and really just get in there yep. because you're driven, you know, by the work that you want to do and feel like there's value in that. And there's a willingness if that, if that, if you begin, the pieces begin to kind of lay them out in front of you. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Now along these lines, I want to just talk a little bit more about this unfolding process of your work. So for what, 12 years now, you've had a business um, it's shifted and you've created partnerships over that. Um, it's grown and, and now you're making a living, you know, and obviously we're able to afford uh, the building of two houses. We're able to uh, purchase property together. Um, but along this, this route here, uh, you have been getting involved in some of the policy side around water uh, here in Southern California. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that has unfolded? Absolutely. Uh, when I first started this work, you know, I thought, oh, I'm going to get in there and change everything. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to show them what needs to be changed. And, you know, I had some initial talks with people at, you know, the water department and implementing rebates and things like that. But at some point I was like, very put off by the layers of bureaucracy and even the people in those departments were kind of like, well, my hands are tied. I, if they couldn't do it, I definitely felt like I couldn't do it. So I kind of stayed out of that realm. I just decided to be boots on the ground, bottom up, you know, just keep doing my thing. But, you know, after years of experience, it's like people look to you with for answers about some of these kinds of things. Well, it doesn't rain enough in San Diego. Like, why would you put in large rainwater storage? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, you hear those questions so many times and you realize people really need to know on a bigger scale that it's a feasible option. And, um, so over the years I've had some really cool experiences. We got a contract to do a 50 home project in a low income neighborhood um, as part of a prop 84 funding to the IRWM, um, the integrated regional water management, uh, group down here in San Diego. And that was just a really incredible project management experience for me. Cause you know, we had to put in a bunch of gray water systems and, and rainwater systems for, you know, not a lot of money, but also for me, ethically, I wanted them to be really high quality systems and I wanted them to be something that would endure with very little maintenance. And so having data from that kind of project is actually really rare and gave me a new way to have a voice in the community. So that was really cool. We also got a grant uh, hired to do a planning project with UCSD for to develop decentralized non-potable 
water systems in lots of different kinds of developments, whether it's like commercial or institutional or multifamily dwellings, things that aren't really being done here in San Diego. And so UCSD was kind of trying to figure out why isn't this being done and what what can we develop and how would that look? And so I worked with them on that. And then I got involved in a project, a peripheral part of that project with the Public Health Alliance through one of our previous permaculture students. And so I was able to work with her on big, bigger project with an advisory on how do we actually make this change here in San Diego? What's the point? Like what's working, what's not working with respect to water and how can we localize more of our water and have more climate resilience with respect to water? So that was like a two-year project and we created two two documents. One was called the discovery document about why aren't things working in a way in San Diego to make using gray water and rainwater, for example, um, easier to use. And then the blueprint document was more about kind of our suggestions and our recommendations to make that change. And so I kind of got really more involved with some of the people in the jurisdictions and, you know, policymakers. You know, and during this whole thing, I'm, I've also been talking with Coastkeeper for many years. And so I created a water harvesting bike tour many years ago and kind of did it on and off according to whether I had time or resources. And um, it was all really mostly volunteer and, and that. But then Coastkeeper decided that they could help sponsor that that ride and that so now Coastkeeper is also involved in the conversation of, you know, rainwater storage and gray water as an opportunity to create more local water infrastructure. And so these networks just keep kind of expanding. And now I'm kind of hoping that we can um, create a localizing San Diego waters conference, um, in the next year or two. Um, I'm also on the IRWM RAC, the regional advisory committee, which is great. Cause now I'm like listening to what kinds of projects are being rolled out. Who, who are the players in San Diego as far as like water management and listening to those conversations inspires me to get more in, uh, invested in the conversation and hopefully trying to kind of connect all of these dots and get everybody in the same room to start talking about managing water at a at a more regional level instead of so many individual jurisdictions and hopefully coming up with a better plan to create more local water resilience. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of set that stage. It seems like, you know, Southern California, San Diego County here in particular, they're emphasis on water has been kind of a, you know, we have limited water resources and much of our water is coming from areas that aren't local, right? Bringing it from the Colorado River or Northern California through a tremendous network of pipes and just the energy that goes into that. You know, in the state of California, isn't it about 30% of the state's energy uh, goes towards just pumping water around the state? Yeah. Water uh, basically... I think it's a little bit less for just water movement, but it's all in general, all water management takes a lot of energy. Which is incredibly huge. And then even still, we, we have limited water resources here. And every number of years as a drought comes through, we're being asked to just cut the amount of water that we're doing. And the dominant uh, governmental response seems to be looking at maybe digging deeper wells or finding water from other spots again, um, or desalinization, which has just come online here. But what we do know is that's even more expensive and it's more energy intensive. It's in fact, the most energy intensive water that we have available. Um, and what hasn't even been on that conversation for decades is the actual rainwater that falls or looking at, you know, other conservation measures like, you know, reusing household gray water, which can be an incredible uh, value. I mean, I, I like to look at gray water really as this like in-ground or in-home spring where you're already taking a shower, you're already doing laundry, 
you're already washing your hands and brushing your teeth, and why not utilize that water elsewhere? Uh, but it's only in the last maybe 10 years, would you say, that that is starting to kind of get there. But really, from what I'm seeing and what, you know, watching some of the work that you've been doing, it's it's in this last year, there's been a tremendous movement um, at this. And you're coming at it not from a... You know, I think a lot of people, when they start to to be upset with the way that things are run, you know, whether it's this environmental problem or, you know, climate change or whatever it is, the big thought that people often have is like, well, somebody should do something about that. And it should be the government that makes this action. And I think when you bring it back and start to look at the bigger picture, you can realize that the government is kind of a upper level thing. It's like, yeah, we need policy change, but I think it all starts back at the local level. And here you were starting at the local level, getting these systems in place. Um, one piece that I've noticed with when it does come to policy is that our policymakers don't know, <laughs> you know, they're winging it. And when it comes to providing alternative ideas, if things like rainwater harvesting, if there's nobody showing that model or gray water, then it doesn't even make it into the discussion. And so, you know, for 12 years, you've been doing this work here in in San Diego, getting out there, doing all these systems, putting yourself out there uh, and just doing it. And it seems like that response then is like, well, you've, by default, become the expert, right? And, you know, people look to you now as that resource for that kind of stuff. And now you're being invited to sit at the table and be able to direct the policy because they have no idea how to do it, what the potential is. Um, what what has that been like for you? Well, I, I think it's really interesting getting into a room of, uh, you know, decision makers and realizing that they have so much information that they're dealing with. You know, they're, t- they're thinking about water in, you know, hundreds of thousands of acre feet, you know, and they're thinking about the most efficient ways and effective ways that they in their position as a manager of a large population and lots of infrastructure can create those water resources. Um, and they, I think they tend to have the concept that these things that we're talking about, rainwater and gray water, they're quaint, but they're not a real solution. Um, because they don't have any control over it. They don't have any control over volumes, over individual households. Um, and so they're not putting any energy into, into those conversations. And even when they do, it's still, it's still a little quaint, you know, it's like, oh, well, we'll give rebates for 55 gallon barrels. You know, it's, it'll just get people started. I mean, they've been doing that for, you know, 10 years. And it's like, okay, at what point do we up our game, you know, and have a different conversation? So, you know, for me, it's, it's always interesting realizing that, that, you know, as sophisticated as we are, we, we forget the simple, the simple solutions. And, um, it's, it's hard walking into a, a room full of people that know so many more things than I do about the complexities of like water management and be the one to tell them like it actually, you can catch thousands and thousands of gallons off of your roof. You know, actually that's a thing, you know, and, and what if you thought about how many roofs there are in San Diego and what it would mean if all of those roofs were capturing thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of water and all of those homes had all of those thousands of gallons stored here within the borders of our region. And what if you thought about that for a minute and thought about what kind of impact that would really be as far as water security goes? You know, it's like the pumps shut down. There's an electrical outage. Uh, there's some kind of contamination in the, the you know, water supply. 
but we still have millions and millions of gallons around the region that are perfectly good and usable for all kinds of things from household water, if you boil it, to keeping the food plants alive in our in our neighborhoods that are actually like supplying food to people. Um, and it's just, we have a lot of disconnects around that, but it's, you know, I just, I feel like who am I to be talking to these people about this, but they really just still, it's not really something that's being talked about or, or is well understood. Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of the myth of the expert in some ways, you know, I think a lot of people, look at other people that have been doing the work and they're like, oh, they're the expert. What do I know? How can I participate? What what can I offer this situation? But the reality is, you know, the expert is just the person that's actually got out there and and said, I'm going to do something. (laughs) And they do it. And they learn from that. They make a bunch of mistakes along the way and they get through those mistakes and then they just kind of put themselves, you know, back out there and keep on track. So I think it's a powerful piece that you've really brought to the table now, and you're getting to direct and really educate the people making the decisions about water policy here in the region and showing like, well, there is this potential here, like whether it's rainwater. It's kind of funny when you look at, you know, people that are in that field and they're talking about, you know, the amount of water that we're needing. And again, you brought back to the to the uh, rain tanks and how much water comes off of the roofs. And when you start to look at the math of that, it's, it's incredible. I mean, even as wasteful as we are as a community in the amount of water that we use, I mean, there's no doubt that we, you know, as a society here use way too much water. Um, I mean, to put it into perspective, the average resident here in the County uses about 120 gallons of water per person per day. Uh, You go elsewhere in the world and that number can easily be half. And if you're, you know, really in a a dire situation, you can get by in a really healthy way using far less Mm -hmm. water. So, you know, about half of that water goes to just irrigation of landscapes, uh, which is, you know, kind of crazy when it's not even, you know, food bearing or, you know, lending any, uh, you know, value other than just aesthetics to the, the community. Now, when I've looked at the the math for how much rain we get in San Diego, and you kind of like run the numbers, even though we're in a super dry region, the in the average year, we have more water that lands in the county than all of the 3 million residents use in the average year. So just showing that the potential for that is there. And what I really love about what you're talking about is rather than focusing on these kind of industrial, very centralized models that are, you know, as we know, very prone to catastrophic failure. And in this era of things like coronavirus and, you know, what, whatever the next thing that comes, um, having a more localized, decentralized system seems to be a much more resilient approach. You know, if everybody has water resources, we're not reliant on one piece, right? And and I would say, you know, that's like sort of the county's model is like to diversify where the water's coming from. So, you know, now instead of 80% of our water coming from, you know, the Bay Area or whatever, we have a pie chart that is a lot of little pieces, but some of those pieces are still coming from some of those sources, even though it's Imperial Irrigation District or mm-hmm. something. It's still from outside of our region, and we're still kind of at the whim of, you know, natural disasters or, you know, economic situations or other ecological situations from these places far away. So still very little of our water is local and so even this this concept at the the larger you know policy level of diversification is a little misleading and the way that it's projected to us is you know made to kind of ease our concerns and make us feel comfortable but when you really look at what's going on it's still a very what i would say fragile system and even something like uh you know all the reservoirs I I looked this up at one point and the reservoirs that we have in San Diego are not designed to fill up from local 
water. So, so even if we had good rain, um, it wouldn't fill up our reservoirs. We were relying on imported water to fill up our reservoirs. And people don't understand that. Also, you know, I was just in a talk with the San Diego County Water Authority, and they're very proud that, you know, they have, we have a six-month reserve. Six-month reserve. Like, if, if everything goes to hell and, you know, we can't get our outside water resources, we have a six-month reserve. That, that's scary, you know, so we do need those. We, we need all of that, you know, at the population level we're at right now, we need all of it. And, you know, we also need to create our own security and, and it's kind of similar to what's going on now with like microgrids, you know, they're, they're talking about climate resilience and in order to meet some climate resilience thresholds, they're, they're working on microgrids for energy. And it, I mean, we should have those same kinds of policies in place for water. I mean, you can live without electricity. You can't live without water. So at the very least, we need to have neighborhood water security. Nice. All right. Well, I think this has been a really beautiful conversation. We've touched on a lot of different avenues from, you know, just getting started in, in a business with the idea of wanting to make a difference in the community um, putting yourself out there and how that's kind of, you know, unfolded for you and in, in, in the work that you're doing here. And then really ending on this, this policy note. Now, I know you do a lot of workshops and uh, we have a number of them coming up here. What else do you have kind of on the horizon here? Well, last year we ran our first water harvesting certificate course, which I was very, very excited about. Um, you know, after doing this for so many years, I just, I feel like I want to share this with people who can have positive impact in the community. You know, plumbers and contractors who tell their clients, oh no, you can't use gray water. It's illegal. When it's not, you know, it's like, Let's educate everybody and get everybody saying, yes, you can. And here's the best way to do it. So it was really exciting to have a full class last year with 14 people, um, you know, from landscape architects to educators uh, to homeowners. And we're hoping to run that again this year. Um, very exciting. And uh, we got our water harvesting bike tour. We're still running it twice a year. We've got May 9th and sometime in October, probably. Um, and then just, you know, hopefully monthly classes where people can come and learn to install a system from start to finish and see how easy it is. I mean, I think we all think there's kind of this uh, separate, um, you know, off the shelf or green solution to our problems when really we have the tools that we need. We, if we can kind of take strip everything away and take it back to its simplest form, we have what we need and, and we can make this happen very simply. And, and we all need to feel empowered for that. So definitely more of that. Great. Well, I hope to have you on the show again in the future to talk maybe a little bit more about the details of, you know, water harvesting systems and, you know, maybe more about the water harvesting certificate program and some of those kinds of things. Uh, for people that want to get a little bit more information about you, where can they uh, find out more about what you're doing? We have two websites, catchingh2o.com and h2o-me.com, which was my original website for my original company. Um, but both of those are um, our company websites. And other than that, if you ever take a permaculture class with Josh, I'll see you there. Yeah. Well, and, and for any of the workshops on the water harvesting, you can find those at the San Diego Sustainable Living Institute website, which is sdsustainable.org. All right. Well, thank you, Brooke, and we hope to chat with you soon. Well, that wraps up this episode. I hope you got some value out of it. I hope that this story was inspiring and just pushes you in that direction of, you know what? I can do this. There's opportunity all around. The big lessons that I gained from this one was really thinking about the value of partnerships of working with people rather than seeing them as competitors, and how that just leads down, once you start down this road, that opportunities begin to arise. That is often 
a great sign that you're on the right track. Well, if you're looking to get more information about some of the work that Brooke's doing, like the Water Harvesting Certificate Program, and she's also a guest teacher on her upcoming permaculture design course, jump on over to the show notes at permacultureforthefuture.com slash episode nine, and you'll find links to all that kind of stuff. And lastly, I just want to give a big shout out to everybody that's got over to iTunes or wherever you're getting your podcast and has left a review or a rating. We read all of these and we check them out and we feel so honored that people are getting a value out of this show. Now, if you're somebody that is getting value, please just take a little bit of time, give a rating or a review. This really helps get our show out to a wider audience. And then share with your friends. That's how we build this movement. So until we meet next week, get out there and do some good.